0: You can turn to in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1 this evening, Lord willing. We're going to finish that opening section that we started a few weeks back. It's a section in verses, well, from 6, chapter 1 verse 6 through chapter 2 verse 2 that shows a contrast between false professors of Christianity and true Christians. If you haven't uh, been able to be with us over the past few weeks, I'll just say this by way of uh, introduction that uh, John, the author of this epistle, is the great apostle, John. He is the elderly pastor, and he's written an epistle, a pastoral epistle, to younger Christians in the churches of Asia Minor. And at his age, everyone is younger than John. He's an older man, and he's writing to younger Christians, which is pretty much the whole Christian world at that time, all younger Christians, but he's writing to strengthen their assurance and especially in light of a, of a serious challenge to uh, the Christendom at that time. And, the immediate, and especially in that area, the immediate situation that's upsetting the assurance of his readers is this group of seemingly self-professedly highly enlightened super-Christians. That's how they thought of themselves. Uh, they had um, been infiltrating the churches, and they'd stirred up controversy in the churches, causing division. And then finally, they departed from those churches, some of them departing from those churches. And as they departed, as they left, they were casting aspersions on John and his gospel and what they had received from the apostolic teaching. They cast aspersions on the way out, leaving a lot of people, a lot of young Christians, uh, troubled in their thinking. One of the leaders in the group uh, is Diotrephes. He was resisting John's authority openly. We find that out in reading 3 John, the third letter. The group, these are, pro, as I've told you before, proto-Gnostics or incipient Gnosticism. Um, they had certain characteristics that we've been through in the past, but they had devotees uh, of their, their form of Christianity, which is really kind of a heretical form of Christianity. But they took that through throughout Asia Minor as they traveled and they spread their divisive doctrines among the churches. And John is warning those churches Against receiving those devotees, or you could say missionaries, in Second John, if you read Second John, that's the burden of that letter. That's the concern he has about the church or churches receiving these kinds of people and kind of blessing them or giving them a greeting or blessing them and sending them on their way and giving them support. In fact, just as a, a quick aside, you may have not thought about the relationship between First John, Second John, and Third John. But this is really how we should read these what we call the Johannine epistles, the the three epistles of John. They they really should be bundled together and thought of together. First, first, the one, two, and three in the name of those epistles are simply to locate those and identify them. And one is the longest one, and the second one is second longest, and the third is the shortest. So that's kind of how they're given those numbers. But they don't really tell us anything about those numbers. Don't tell us anything about their chronology, relationship with one another, or importance, or anything like that. But I recommend that you read, go back through some time and read those epistles, the three epistles of John, in, in reverse. Read third John first, and then second John, and then first John, and it helps you to see how the relate the the letters relate to each other because John really wrote third John to commend uh, Demetrius. He was the bearer of all three of those letters as he took them to the churches. Demetrius came and he was to be, he was commended. John commended him to his friend Gaius, who's the the recipient of third John. and by the recommendation of Gaius, Demetrius was then to be welcomed by the addressees of second John, the elect lady and her children. Elect lady refers to Uh, a mother church and then her children to the churches that are planted by that mother church, which is the elect lady. So the elect lady and her children, this mother church and the churches that she'd planted had been infiltrated and influenced by this divisive Christian Gnostic sect that John is confronting really in 1 John. Uh, The churches had been receiving these heretics into their church, into their homes, supporting them, giving them greetings, thinking they're among them, And so John intends 2 John to be read to all these churches, sort of like a cover letter. And then, having read 2 John to the church, being kind of duly corrected and warned, the churches were then to read John's longer epistle, which is the one we're in, 1 John, so they could get back on track with the gospel that they'd heard and received, so they could recover their joy, their assurance, be warned about these false professors of Christianity, Stand firm, keep walking in the fellowship, okay? So that's really how those letters fit together. And I hope that not only helps you to see the relationship between the three epistles of John, but also to understand this heresy that we're talking about is a very significant problem in Asia Minor. Um, it was no minor thing. It was a funny, Asia Minor, no minor thing. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was an insidious threat, uh, disruptive in the churches, upsetting individual Christian assurance And so John starts in the opening section here by reminding them of this gospel that they'd been taught, what they'd heard, uh, the connection to historic uh, reception of the gospel of Christ that they themselves heard from Jesus Christ, the word of life. So he starts then, after he gives, he lays down this prologue, and then he starts in verse five and following, he starts with a test of fellowship about, do you adhere to walk in The light, as God is in the light, or do you walk in the darkness? And that's really the test. So he starts with this test of fellowship. He exposes the the difference between the one group and the other, between false professors of religion or Christianity and true Christians. And the test is really in this opening section, how do you deal with sin? How do you deal with sin? How do you deal with your own sin? How do you deal with the sin of other people? So, Look at um, at your Bibles there, 1 John 1. I'll start in verse 5 and read through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We've uh, noted that in this opening section, it has six conditional sentences, and they're paired up together. So three pairs of these conditional if-then statements that basically contrast the difference between false professors of the faith, the first first uh, conditional sentence and then true professors of uh, Christianity and the difference really is in each of these instances how they deal with sin so john starts with the false claim and in each case in verse 6 8 and 10 it's if we say so they're all about what they profess to be true what they claim but their habits of life prove that they are lying their lives tell the opposite story so they claim they have fellowship with God. They claim they don't have any guilt of sin. And they also claim that they in fact don't sin at all. They really don't sin. Their lives though tell the opposite story. So John is saying, don't just listen to what people say, actually watch what they do. See how they live their lives. That's what he's saying. So true believers, by contrast, they demonstrate new life. And they do that by walking in the light, verse seven by being confessors of sin, verse nine, and then by by relying on the work of Christ in their assurance in chapter two, verses one and two. Okay, so last week, we looked at test number one, the test of personal lifestyle, how it is we walk, how we live our lives, that's verses six and seven. We talked about repetition of terms and concepts, fellowship, walk, light, and we talked about the claim of fellowship versus the reality of fellowship, we'll move on, okay? That's what we talked about last week. So test number two, that's where we're gonna jump in uh, right now in verses eight and nine. Test number two is really the test of how we think about ourselves. Are we personally guilty? Do we have guilt before God or do we bear no guilt at all? Um, You could ask it in, in cast it in modern terms when people think of themselves, do you think of yourself to be a good person? You know, are, people, are human beings essentially good, or are they essentially bad? Are people good by nature, or are they bad by nature? Do they be, bear guilt before God, or really bear no guilt before God? That's the test number two. So look at, look at verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. So literally... If we say we have no sin, if we say sin, we have not. It's emphasized in the text there, emphatic denial. And just to clarify what that expression means, whenever John uses the verb to have, which is used here, echo, and the verb echo then is governing an abstract noun. In this case, the abstract noun is hamartia, sin. He's talking about a condition that somebody lives in, a state of being. So it's literally sin, I'm not in that state of being. I'm not in that condition of being guilty. Several instances of this connection in John 941, 1522, 1524, 1911, if you wanna look those up, you can see the same pattern there of the use of the verb echo with harmartia uh, in his gospel. It's the same pattern. Jesus, just as an example, if you were blind, Jesus said in John 9, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. You'd have no sin, hamartion. But now that you say, we see, your guilt, your sin remains. In John 15, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. So hamartion, Uk uh, echoson. So, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So on and on goes. So just to restate the claim of the false professors, this is what they're saying. Sin, uh-uh, not us. Guilt, We don't have it. We are not guilty. That's that's what we are before God. It's not entirely clear what gave rise to this, but there's plenty within Gnosticism, uh, even this incipient form of Gnosticism, along with the various early teachings that gave rise to a full-blown 2nd century, 3rd century Gnosticism. They believed that by passing through doorways of knowledge, uh, ascending staircases, upward paths of light, that they had ascended beyond categories like this, like sin and guilt and stain and impurity. They were kind of beyond all that. They'd entered into states of perfection, uh, a condition that's kind of beyond earthly categories. In fact, they see that the more they can escape from this material world, which is created as a result of an oops on a part of a demiurge that, spilled over and made the material world, which is inherently sinful, they believe that by escaping anything material and, and getting into the, the realm of light, that they're basically heading toward non-guilt, non-sin, non-stain, non uh, you know, getting out of that whole category. So they reject the category altogether. So they're no, no longer bound then to human scrutiny, uh, the scrutiny of a church, the scrutiny of a church member who questions their lifestyle. They say, hey, I am above all that no longer subject to human judgment, they're no longer bound by material reality, tainted by any fleshly thinking. They possessed, in fact, some secret esoteric knowledge that wasn't available to the likes of you, and uh, they transcend your unenlightened uh, mindset. Church members, they just issue and reject any accountability at all. I've seen people come into our church just like that, who just reject your duty, your responsibility to love them by asking questions about their life. That same attitude exists today. It's a different theology maybe driving it, but it is the same arrogance. It's the same haughtiness toward other Christians, same kind of triumphalistic, beyond this world, beyond your categories kind of a mindset, same dismissiveness toward other sincere-minded, sincere-hearted Christians, same refusal to live in any accountability or walk in humility or meekness before God and man. But for many professing Christians, I think there's a pragmatism that, and especially here in our country, there's a pragmatism that dominates their thinking. This kind of end justifies the means mentality. And sadly, I see this among many professing reformed thinkers or Calvinistic thinkers that speak the language of divine sovereignty, but they operate as if it all depends on their arguments and cleverness and appeal and influence. And they're kind of above you. They don't need to listen to your concerns. That's pietism on your part. It's you kind of holding them fast to some kind of a devotional life that they say, I I don't need that. I find so many professing Christians, and I think they come from all number of various and even contradictory theological viewpoints but they fail to be sober and self-reflective about this. They're not humble. They're not self-examining. They rather like to walk around self-assured saying, sin, I don't have. Um, I'm not an error. I am not guilty. I'm not subject to your categories and I'm not subject to your scrutiny. Well, John says if that's you and that's how you speak, or if that's someone in your hearing is saying things like that, saying we're not in a state of sin, we're not in a condition of sinfulness, we're not guilty, he says two things follow. Number one, that condition is worse than we realize because we're totally self-deceived. And number two, the truth is not at all a governing or operative principle within us. And so we're in a very bad, bad condition A desperate state of being, as one put it, such a quote, such a self-deceived claim seldom deceives other people and never deceives God. That is to say, you may think you walk above on a plane of non-guilt and non-sinfulness and beyond accountability and scrutiny, but nobody else is buying it. (laughs) That's That's what that quote's trying to say. And certainly God sees through to the very heart of the matter. So whoever denies sin is actively engaged in self-deception, blinding, it's almost like shoving stakes into your eyes and blinding yourself to any ability to see in the mirror and see what you actually look like. And there's no truth in you at all. So verse nine, the assurance then, now he turns to the assurance in contrast and gives assurance to believers. Basically saying, I know that's not you. That's not any of you, believers, Now, verse 9, if we confess our sins, number one, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And number two, he's also faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let me uh, stop at this point, ask the first question for the night. What is the difference? So in in verse 8, we see this claim. We see them saying something, if we say. And then in verse 9, we see the word, if we confess. Two different verbs. What is the difference between saying and confessing? If someone asks you, ask you, as I'm doing right now, what's the difference between that? Saying and confessing, how would you describe it?
1: I don't know if I'm gonna answer right, but I think it's saying, you just verbally saying and confessing is repenting. And that's what I see when I confess to God, I'm repenting in what I'm doing.
0: Good answer, yeah, thank you. I don't
2: know if this is right either, but um, I was just thinking that, like, saying is, um, like, you can say kind of anything, but when you confess something, you're very sincere about it, and you
0: truly believe it. Um, That's what I was thinking. All right, so so saying, not necessarily connected to sincerity, and we certainly see that in verse 8, no sincerity there. Confessing something there's more something more sincere, and I think what Isabel was saying was like you're doing it before God, and so there's even like this kind of fear of the Lord driving a sincerity. you're concerned, you know you're really careful about what you say, good I've been told that the word for confess means to say the same, mm mm-hmm. yes, it um, is, I'll get to that in just a second, yes, but continue so, so the person who just says he has no sin he's he's self authority giving his own authority. Whereas the one who's saying the same as, he's not self-referencing. He's in this case, referencing God and saying the same thing that God says about it. Very good son. point. Excellent point. Yes. So self-referential, just say, speak, just, you know, your, your self is the standard. Whereas say the same as, it implies there's a standard at play here. Yeah. Confessing and confessing. That's true. Good. Yeah. So Betsy's getting even closer to the to the clarity on the two words, but even what Callie and Isabel said, really get to the heart of the matter, that this confession issue is before God, saying is on a horizontal plane before other people. There's a claim before other people. You know, you're not fooling God with your claims. Uh, He sees right through it and sees how you live. But um, the difference between saying and speaking the truth or reciting the truth and then confessing the truth uh, two different things there. easy to easy to miss in the in the English. But in verse eight, verse nine, John uses the word um, sin. In verse eight, he uses the singular, referring to sin as an abstract principle. In verse nine, he's actually using the plural, which is how believers understand sin as sins, like concrete sins. They are actual sins, specific things, concrete offenses to against God. So, particular transgressions of God's holy law. There's no vagueness or abstraction there. And that's what we come to God doing when we speak to him about our sins. We're confessing. And the verb, as you pointed out, is the verb, it's, so lego is the verb to say or to speak that's used in verse eight. To say, if we claim this, if we say this, homo legeo, so it's, it's the word for word or say to speak and then homo on the front of it. So it's to say the same thing, homo meaning same as, same, say the same thing about our sins that what? That God says about our sins. So when you confess your sins, and especially think about this when you come to God confessing your sins as 1 John 9 commands you to do. If you confess your sins and you come to him confessing, Say to him, recite to him the sins that you've committed using the language that he gives you to do it. So go to, don't just say, you know, like don't use categories from the world. Um, I'm having, um, you know, a bipolar moment or an anxiety attack, or I've got this little disorder, Lord. You know, that's not what you're saying. Go to the language of scripture that he revealed to us for our clarity and for the good of our heart and the good of our soul and use his particular language that he uses to describe our sins. Language that he has actually revealed in scripture. Let me ask this question, just to make this really practical, all right? So here's the question, make this really practical. And um, if you've got a family member listening to your answer, they'll keep you honest in the answer to your question. When you discover that you have sinned against somebody else, okay, think about the family member you're sitting next to. Um, but a friend, a coworker, family member, church member, how do you go about when you speak to that person acknowledging you're wrong? I mean, literally, what do you say to the person that you've offended when you speak to them about your sin? I'm not asking what you should say. I'm asking what you actually do say. And remember, your family member is sitting right next to you to let me know what, because we'll just hand the mic over. So, who'd like to? Okay, with I, did I just scare everybody from? I'm not taking the mic. <laughs> Your wife's not here. I could see you're bold, emboldened. Yeah, I sent sitting to Savannah on Sunday, and um, so uh, she texted me um, some sweet. You know, like I'm sorry that I upset you, and I, I said. Um, no, 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 there was a lot of sin going on there uh in my heart. I sinned against you um by getting angry. She's sitting there, so she yeah, always, yeah. so she's is that true, Savannah? She can tell you what I really
2: said <laughs> Yes, that's true <laughs> <laughs> all right
0: all right, good thank you that's that's uh, so what I've just heard from Brett and Savannah there is a good example on how to do this confession. that's good, But uh yeah.
1: I think uh, for us, it's uh, for uh, sometimes it's easier to use exact biblical language when it fits. But like Brett, it's you know when you seek forgiveness for being angry or impatient, or I mean th- those are the easy sort of. Like, if I sorry, you know, uh, I um, we go beyond just the I'm sorry part, obviously. But um, I well, say that's,
0: okay, no, you said obviously. <clears throat> that's actually what I'm trying to provoke. Uh, okay. and, and raise here is I don't think that's always obvious. For
1: for for us, it's not, and I'm sorry. It is it is a request. Please forgive me for, and then recite it. Okay. However, the Thank language you. is sometimes not easy. We, I'll, you know, if I'm honest, yeah. it's it's easy to say. Please forgive me for being angry, and that's there's more. There's so much more to it when you really get into it.
0: Okay. No, keep the mic. So, what is wrong with just saying? So, let's say you you lose your. Your patience, your patience, and you get angry. What's wrong with Hypothetically. saying? Huh? Hypothetically. Hypothetically. In an alternate universe. So um, this Wes, he does get angry, and it's biblically certifiable, all right? But what, let's say he says, hey, Kate, sorry about that. What's wrong with that?
1: I think that, that that goes a little bit to what you're talking about for, that's what you say to appease people around. That's what the world says is to, is to appease the ears around you as opposed to revealing your heart that directs your conscience to, to follow those things or to, to pursue true righteousness. I think for us, if you say sorry, first of all, it just, it's been overused. It's very clear, but it, it exemplifies a sorrowness and it doesn't clearly help you uh, repent what is causing the sorrow and the grief. Are you grieved for your sin? Are you grieved for... Well, tell, tell
0: me this real quick. Sorry to interrupt, but just, uh, um, just to get to this, what, what, is a, what is sorry appropriate for? Is it ever appropriate to use the word sorry?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's, in my mind, it's rare. Uh, usually when I bump into people, uh, sorry. Okay, so you sorry. bump into somebody.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is that a sin you committed against them? No. No, so that's where sorry is appropriate. Like, I regret that I just bumped into you and knocked you over. Uh, I dropped your coffee all over your lap, and that was not a sin on my part. I really didn't want to do that, but I'm just a bumbling, you know, all thumbs, and there it goes. I'm sorry about that. Really, really sorry. I just burned your lap. What about, I apologize? Like, you're going to amp, I'm not, an, this is really severe, so I'm not going to say I'm sorry. I apologize. What's wrong with that?
1: Sincerely apologize. Sincerely Sincerely.
0: apologize.
1: It's romancing a word that still means the same thing.
0: Yeah, you're kind of like dressing up the word, right? So I apologize, the Greek word for apology, apologia, you know what that is? It's to make a defense. So when you say I apologize, you're basically saying, I make a defense for that. I sincerely make a defense for that. That's really not what you're meaning to say. You don't want to church up the language with, I'm sorry to apologize. That's not really doing any favors. What you want to say is, I need to confess my sin to you. And then you don't say, I got frustrated. Frustration is just a, a dialed down word for anger. It's really cloaking the actual sin we've committed. So let's kind of use biblical language and let's call our sin for what it is. Homologeo, say, speak what God says or speaks about our sin.
2: Um, so something that's my family's not here, but <laughs> something that's hard for me in confessing sin is uh, like taking personal responsibility. So I think when um, when we when I sin, um, something that is really tempting is to kind of, shift the focus off myself and make the focus the situation so i'm sorry that that was awkward or you know sorry that conversation went so badly or you know, how it's about like, this
0: one i'm sorry that offended you
2: yeah yeah Like
0: you're the problem yeah it's your like, sensitivity that's really the issue here but i acknowledge it yeah you're weak
2: <laughs> it's like the kid that knocks over the glass of milk and says oh the milk fell you you know like (laughs) we do that with our our sin yeah um and so i know that for me that's a temptation to just talk about the situation but not my role in the situation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and then with words like sorry or apologize i think um i mean confessing sin maybe this is worldly language too but it really exposes us and it makes us very vulnerable and um that can be very hard and you know, cause we're prideful and <laughs> we don't like to be exposed. I don't. Um, but even words like apologize or I'm sorry. Um, they're, they're, they're words where you just say, I apologize and it's over. And when you say, will you forgive me? You're putting yourself at the mercy of another person. And you're saying, I, I need your forgiveness. You know, mm-hmm. you're humbling yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I mean, Good. for, for me, all those things are really hard and I have to pray a lot before doing them because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't come easily.
0: Hmm. Well, you know, must not sin very much because I sin a lot, and it gives me plenty of practice on how to do this. So, so here's what I do, and I want to commend this to you, just to give you a pattern for your confession, uh, kind of a, a pattern of words that you can speak so that you can really reconcile offenses well and, um, and start mending broken relationships. And of course, when you commit a sin against somebody else, that other person that you've gotten angry at is not the lawgiver and the judge. Who's the lawgiver and the judge that said, "Thou shalt not murder"? Is God. So the first, the one you've actually committed sin against, formal sin, transgressed the law in, is God. So you must go to God and confess your sin to God. Say the same thing that God says about your sin. God, I, can, I need to con, come to you confess. I just had an argument with my wife, my dear wife, this creature that I love, that is a gift from you. I just blew my anger at her. I, no patience and I expressed anger to her unrighteously. You're the one who said thou shalt not murder and anger is the seedbed of murder in my heart. I need to confess to you that I have violated your commandment. Will you forgive me? So you see what I've done. I've said the same thing about my anger that God says about it. I've acknowledged it to him. And then I have asked him to forgive me. On the basis of 1 John 1.9, and basis of what what the other things we're gonna cover here tonight uh, in this section, it's because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross that I can be assured that my sin is forgiven when I come and confess it to him. Now I go to my wife. I don't just leave it there and say, good, that's done and dusted. No, I need to go to my wife because she's actually borne the brunt of my sin against God. She's actually taken that and felt that. And I need to go to her and say the same thing. Honey, I, um, I need to confess to you that I have committed the sin of anger and hatred and impatience and acrimony with you. I need to confess to you that I've committed this sin. Will you forgive me? And now I have asked, I've shifted it over to her. What's her responsibility as a Christian? Matthew 18, forgive she should, must forgive. Now, maybe she's still a little warmed up from that whole deal and exchange and she can't do it right then. So you need to give her, give her a little time give the other person a little time, but Christians forgive. Christians forgive, okay? So there's just, uh, just something for you to think about. First, go to God, confess, say the same thing that God says about your sin. say it to him, ask him to forgive you. And then you know, based on 1 John 1, 9, he will forgive because he's faithful and righteous, faithful and just. And you go to the person you've offended as well, and you you ask them to forgive you. Now, what if you've committed the sin of gossip in a group setting? You know what you need to do? You need to go back to every person that heard you in that group and confess your sin of unrighteous speech, gossip or slander or whatever it is. You know how, see how tricky this gets? And you start sinning in public, it all starts to come out you got a lot of people to, but I'll tell you what, if you practice this, you know what's gonna instill in you? A humility before God and a meekness before others. And you know how quick you're gonna to be to help other people who sin against you? You're gonna be so quick to be gracious and forgive. Practicing this makes soft-hearted Christians that are compassionate and gracious with one another, merciful. So practice this. In your home, practice it. Uh, in your church, practice it. I tell you, you wanna freak your, your uh, coworkers out? Practice this with your unsaved coworkers and go to them and say, hey, listen, uh, Bob, uh, the other day when you told me to turn in those reports, I kind of turned my head and rolled my eyes at you and kind of then talked about you behind your back. I need to confess to you that, um, I'm sorry you were offended at that. No, I'm just, <laughs> no. You confess your sin to Bob and he's gonna be floored. He's gonna be like, what happened to this guy? So, we're assured by this verse, 1 John 1 9, is such a precious promise. If we, when we do confess our sins to God, because of his eternally unchanging character, his faithfulness, and on the basis of the perfect, all sufficient atonement that he provided in Christ, that is his justice, his justice uh, and righteousness, God not only forgives us the sins that we confess, that is, those sins of which we're mindful, but notice it says that he cleanses us also from the defilement of the sins of which we're not mindful, from all unrighteousness. So come to him. You you need to understand, um, as you go through the Christian life, you do shed sins. You do shed patterns of sin, habits of sin. There are sins in your youth that you you no longer practice because you're being sanctified and growing and you're not enslaved to sin anymore. That's the really, really good news of the gospel is you can walk in righteousness. You can be free from sins that once bound you. Well, you know what you discover though, as you grow older in the faith, you discover, wow, my, ins- my sin goes deeper than I ever thought. Man, my imaginations are sinful. My, my wanderings and my-, my thoughts go in just a, a-, just a loose direction. Man, there's-, there's sin all the time that I'm committing. I don't even realize how much sin that I commit. That is true. That's what the doctrine of total depravity teaches us. It goes deep, it goes broad in our lives. And so our sanctification, earlier, the the sins are on the surface that everybody can see are kind of shed, but then as you grow in the faith, it's like you go deeper and deeper and and go into every nook and cranny and every dark corner, and you're confessing and repenting and dealing with your heart before God. And that's really where a lot of your sins as you mature in Christ, That's where they are, is in the heart. So we're um, seeing that he will forgive us on the basis of this. If we're confessed just the sins that he brings to mind, the sins that he knows, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He clears our conscience. He gives us uh, a new... A new star reconciles us to himself. So Christian, never be afraid to admit or acknowledge your sin. Be very quick to humble yourself, quick to confess, because your God is always there. He's always waiting, always eager to forgive you, ready to forgive you, ready to cleanse you, restore you, back into fellowship with him, the joy of communion with him, the joy of worship of, with him, uh, or of him with a clear conscience. And that's what uh, we desire so much. So, the ultimate assurance, though, of forgiven sin and dealing with our sin as believers comes in the final test of the final section, the third test. Test number three, the test of confessing personal sin or admitting and acknowledging your sins, which is something that false professors of Christianity will not do. Look at verse 10. If we say, there it is again, we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Someone who refuses to admit personal sin is a person who seems to have an impossible time seeing any actual transgression in himself or in herself. This person, you know, according to the previous principle, the person may be even willing to admit the principle of sin or the principle of guilt in theory, that people are, you know, not basically good, but basically bad. They can admit that. They just can't admit that, this person can't admit that he committed any actual sin against you. Uh, Try as you might, you're not gonna get them to acknowledge or admit anything. Always gonna point the finger somewhere else. When a person like this is confronted with concrete examples of his or her sin, he'll make excuses, um, maybe counter accuse, point the finger back at you. Say, well, yeah, yeah, but you, yeah, but look what you did. You caused this, you did this to me. Or maybe uh, shift the blame to other people uh, or shift the blame to circumstances whatever it is, somehow letting themselves off the hook and never admitting that he and he alone or she and she alone has ever committed any particular sin. So for the one who is like that, who refuses to confess any actual sin against God or other people, two things are true. Look at it there in verse 10. This person tacitly accuses God of being a liar. Since God says all have sinned, and that includes you too, all means all in that text, if you say that that's not you, well, then you're saying God's a liar. And number two, the person is devoid of the word. God's word has no practical effect in this person's life, which is another way of saying, and when you draw the lines back to the heart, it's another way of saying this person is not born again, cannot be born again, remains unregenerate, remains unforgiven. This person is still in his or her sins. Now, we've talked a little bit about sin. I want to shift and spend our remaining time on this next section because this this is where John's tone changes. Notice the affectionate address in chapter two, verse one, my little children. Notice his statement of purpose. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So John's been moving back and forth. He's been contrasting false and true believers. And as he's moved forward, move the ball forward. He has been aiming at this one goal, aiming at this point. This is where he's going to apply the doctrine of the atonement to the hearts of believers. This is so precious. He's addressing, as he's addressing attitudes towards sin, John knows that uh, true believers, and in a setting like ours, it's true. True believers have a sensitive conscience towards sin. I, I know I've had a number of conversations after this kind of teaching or after Sunday sermons, I've had a number of believers come up to me and just troubled because I think I'm actually preaching directly at them and getting into their kitchen. And did my wife send you an email or you know what's, what's going on? But, they're, but true believers with sensitive consciences towards sin are very likely to react with ultra sensitivity and forget to apply the soothing effect of sound theology to their conscience. So some, some will ask questions like, well, since God is light and in him is no darkness at all, and since I have sinned, that means I have veered into the darkness and I'm not walking in darkness, or I'm not walking in the light at that time, but I'm walking in darkness. What, what's distinguishing me from a false professor that's being described here? I mean, how can God forgive my sin, cleanse me of my unrighteousness, keep me in his fellowship when I keep veering off into the darkness. In fact, if I, if I notice I'm in darkness, confess that, I only confess it to realize how poor my confession has been and how much I neglected to confess because I realized I've got all these other sins too. They just become overwhelmed. So you say, well, haven't they read 1 John 1.9? <laughs> Wouldn't that do it? Yes. Just a second ago, they read it in their context, but they hadn't had the benefit of two millennia's reflection behind uh, this verse Notice how tenderly John addresses them. He says, First, my little children, since they are his children, uh, you know, he, he's expressing this familial relationship. They're of the same stuff as he is. He's saying he's experienced what they're experiencing. He knows what it's like to have a sensitive conscience, he knows what it's like for them to react that way. He's reacted that way, he's felt the guilt of sin. He has failed as a man to apply the theology that bolsters his own assurance. Secondly, we say John is tender in stating his purpose. He's writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He holds forth a very real hope, a very attainable goal of not sinning. Practically speaking, you need to understand this in a very practical way, and I hope you're hearing this. If you're young and you have struggled with sins, you do not need to be enslaved to sin any longer. You can have freedom from the sin that has, that has bound you, the sin that is a, a bes- what well, the Puritans used to describe as a besetting sin, something that, that has created a long-term habit in your life. Christians really can escape habits and patterns of sin and establish new habits and patterns of holiness and walking in righteousness and living in the light. I just want to resound that message to any young person or old person who struggles with the sin of pornography. I have, I have counseled young guys who've struggled with this so much, and there are girls who can struggle with it too, but they feel like they just want to give up. They just feel so overcome by their passions and their lusts and things like that that they feel they cannot break free. That is a lie is a lie from the devil to say that you cannot break free from sexual sin, from lust, from covetousness, from anything else that has dominated your heart. If you are truly in Christ, he has set you free from sin. You just need to learn to walk around that freedom. There's help, there's help in older Christians who have learned to walk in freedom, and you can learn it too. So John says, I'm writing these things to you for the very purpose that you don't need to struggle with this anymore. You don't need to fall prey to it anymore. You can be free. My little children, trust me, I've been there. That's what he's saying, all right? Second half of verse one, he acknowledges that people are still gonna sin. He says, if anyone does sin, in the remote possibility that any of you Christians out there might sin, all right? Anyone sh- if anyone should sin, that's the sense of the conditional. He's acknowledging a believer's ongoing struggle with sin. This reality, this fighting against an indwelling sin nature. John is assuming this, even though he's not unpacking and elaborating it right here, but he's identifying it, this ongoing fight against indwelling sin. And I'll tell you, this is where assurance is needed the most, isn't it? Is when you fail, that's when you need assurance. When you see your sin, when you find yourself in, in the pit in the darkness and you don't know how you, how you fell there, gradually slipped in there through habits that you created weeks ago. And now all of a sudden you find yourself in the ditch and you're wondering how you got there. He's, this, is where, this is where the application of the theology of propitiation, which he's going to cover, and the advocacy of Christ, man, this is where it visits us when we need it the most. So John grounds the subjective experience of assurance that he wants to give them in two objective realities. And when I say objective, I mean external to them not based on how they feel, not based on their subjective experience at the moment, but based on something that's external, objective to them, outside of them, not dependent on them. Two realities, Christ's intercession, number one in chapter two, verse one, and then Christ's propitiation, chapter two, verse two. His intercession for his own and his propitiation for his own. So focusing on these two realities, let's take them one at a time describe them maybe as like rocks of assurance or a boulder of assurance. You could say a granite mountain of assurance. You know, you got two of them here. One is Christ's intercession. Chapter two, verse one, second half of the verse. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I don't wanna give a short shrift to this, but since we are a little bit short on time here, I need to speak quickly, means you need to listen closely. So if anyone should sin, we recognize that as a reality, as John does in the previous verses, right? If we confess our sins, he's acknowledging you have to confess because you have sinned. So he says, if anyone should sin, we don't want to sin. John doesn't want us to sin. God who is light and in him is no darkness at all. He doesn't want us to sin either. But since we do sin, we must acknowledge the guilt of our sins, confess them, But what assurance do we have that we remain in the fellowship? If anyone should sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's the assurance. You have to go outside of yourself and see that there's an advocate for you. You either believe that and embrace that truth, or you don't. That term advocate is a term used exclusively by John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 14, verse 26, chapter 15, verse 26, chapter 16, verse seven, he uses that term advocate, which is the term parakletos, that refers paraclete, maybe you've heard that before, but it refers to the Holy Spirit in those verses in John. Sometimes translated comforter, but really counselor, um, or lawyer (laughs) advocate, really better translations. He's referring to the Holy Spirit in, in the gospel of John. This is the only time outside of the gospel that he uses this term. And notice he's applying it to, not the Holy Spirit, he's applying it to Christ, Christ's advocacy. So this use of parakletos brings us into, we're to picture a courtroom setting in which the father is the just judge, chapter one, verse nine. He is faithful and he is righteous, or the word is just, He's dikaios, he's just. So God is the just judge. The father is the just judge. He's in the courtroom, he's on the bench and he decides the case of the guilty sinner. But in our case, he listens to his son, the advocate. Unlike any human advocate who is sinful, this attorney is perfectly righteous. He is, says there, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is the advocate. By his human name, Jesus, we're meant to see him as identifying with us in that divine courtroom. He's standing in as our representative over humanity, over us personally. And by his messianic name, Christ, that is his identification with God. And he stands as the divine representative. So that is to say, it's Jesus, the Christ, who is the most unique of all attorneys. He is the only one of his kind. He advocates for the prosecution and for the defense. He's able to represent both prosecution and defense perfectly and justly at the same time in the same person. John says each and every believer, each and every true Christian described in these few verses, walking in the light, showing proper sensitivity to personal guilt before God, confessing personal sins, we have present tense, verb form, present tense, verb form there, ongoing continuous state of, of having. We continually have this advocate with the Father, this lawyer standing before his bench on our behalf, but also on the Father's behalf. He's the perfect advocate and he has the perfect basis for his mediating plea, which brings us to the second rock or boulder or mount, you know, mountain of our assurance, which is Christ's propitiation. Chapter 2, verse 2, he, and it's very emphatic in the Greek, it's this same one, this same one, our, that is, who is that? That's our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This same one is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this, you go from the courtroom scene in verse one, and then John takes us to the temple scene in verse two, where the sentence is paid in full by the propitiatory sacrifice that Jesus Christ made of himself to God. The word propitiation, hilasmas, it's a sacrifice that's made to appease the wrath of an angry deity. Some people in our modern time don't like to think of God as an angry deity, but that's exactly what he is about our sin. And why is the deity angry? Is it because Jesus committed sins? No. John says he propitiated the wrath for our sins. How did he do that? Substituting himself for each and every one of us. Giving his life in exchange for ours taking in himself and on himself the due penalty for our sins. By substitution, that's how he did it. Substitutionary atonement that he provided was based on the principle of imputation. Imputation is a fancy word for saying reckoning to. So God reckoned our sins to him so that he could reckon the righteousness of Jesus Christ to each and every one of us. One more question. This is from John's Gentile readers. They ask, oh, wait a minute. Is this atonement language? this temple language, is this language directed at you Jews only? Is this sacrifice in this sacrificial language based on your Jewishness? Does the Lamb of God take away our sins too? Well, this author, John, from the very beginning of his experience with Jesus Christ, John chapter one, he was there with his first teacher, John the Baptist, who pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of what? The Jews, the world, right? For a Jew listening to him say, take away the sins of the world, that's blowing their minds. What do you mean the world? What do you, don't you mean Israel? Israel and the world, Israel and the Gentiles too. This is not a, an expression of atonement of some make the mistake of thinking is not an expression of personal atonement for each and every individual person without exception. That is to say that Jesus did not die for the sins of Judas Iscariot and others. He did not die for the sins of Judas Iscariot. He did not pay for every single one of Judas' sins. If that's the case, why is Judas still in hell? Why is he the son of perdition? Why is he reprobate, right? So he did not die for the sins of Judas Iscariot and every person without exception. He provided a, an atonement for all of God's elect, for all of God's chosen people, without it making any distinction between Jew or Gentile, male or female, status or social class. But all kinds of people are included in his elect people. Very interesting, the meaning of the words here, the grammar in this sentence and these sentences here, the syntax, undeniable, unmistakable, because... Supposing for a moment that Jesus, if by not for ours only, but all for so, for the sins of the whole world, that includes Judas Iscariot, Jesus dying for Judas Iscariot's sins. First of all, what keeps Judas in hell? We'd ask that question. But we'd also have to say, based on this verse, with the close connection, the inextricable connection between propitiation and intercessory prayer, it would mean that currently, right now, Jesus is the intercessor praying as the advocate for Judas Iscariot, who is in hell. Very strange, if that were the case. All those for whom Christ is the advocate, he is their propitiation for each and every one of them. And the reverse is also true. All those for whom Christ died, Christ is their advocate, ongoing advocate. Key verses here, key section of scripture to support the doctrine of particular redemption or some say limited atonement. All these realities come together again as Paul assures the Romans in Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. There's propitiation. And more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Sounds very similar to this section here. Paul then asks, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. No one can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, listen. I'll just end here, and we want to pray a little bit too. But I just want to—I just want to emphasize to you, as Christians, that you don't dodge questions about your sinfulness. That you don't try to pretend you don't have sin. You don't try to fake it till you make it. Be quick to acknowledge sin or fault. Or if you're not seeing it when someone confronts you, that's okay. Just say, "Hey, I'm." Can you give me a little time to pray about this and think it through and just go before the Lord. And if you've committed sin, just humbly admit it. Be meek before people, humble before God, fear God and confess your sin. Be quick to deal with your sin. Don't hide it. Don't run from confrontation. Because listen, if we'll do this with one another, all of our rocks or boulders or mountains of assurance, they're all the same. We're all standing on the, the the same two mountains, all ground is level at the cross and all of our assurance rests on these two foundations of Christ's intercession for each and every one of us, his propitiatory sacrifice that he made in his own body on the cross for every single one of us. That has got to give you strong, strong assurance as Christians and give you discernment to see the difference between you and those who walk away refusing to admit sin, confront sin, deal with sin, show accountability. Whatever, okay?